Hi, this is Dave Vanderveen, and this is the Kick Aspirational Podcast. We are in season one, and this is episode 12. You'll notice in the interview, I call it episode 11. Uh, That was a mistake. That was last week. This week, it's episode 12, and it's an interview with Kathleen Falsani. She's a a well-known author, uh, been very successful. She's uh, been a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times on religion. She's written uh, over five books. She's a very dear friend. I've known her since, I think, my sophomore or junior year at Wheaton College, and she lives in Laguna Beach, and uh, her son is my godson, Vasco Posley. So I'm really excited to introduce you to Kathleen Falsani. I wanted to make sure that uh, if you are interested in writing or if writing is something that you've written to me about, I've had a lot of notes and DMs and, and emails about how to become a writer or maybe people who are interested in how to get into the discipline of writing. Kathleen, as particularly at the end of this podcast, gets into a lot of detail Um about ways to approach that and think about it and get started. Uh, She also is a writing, uh, as an editor and writing coach. She's been my coach and she's helped me write for publications. Um, So I'd strongly recommend that if that's something you're interested in, that uh, that you reach out to her. You can reach her at godgirl, G-O-D-G-R-R-L on Twitter. Uh, or, or via Facebook or via Instagram. She's she's on social media regularly. She also leaves her contact details at the end of the podcast. So you can find it there. But I wanted to make sure that uh, you knew who she was. You were excited about hearing this interview. It's really fantastic. She has created a world of her own here in Laguna Beach. Um, and we're very, very proud to be good friends and uh, and the god the godfather of, of her son, Vasco Posley. So uh, be kick aspirational, check it out, and uh, have a good listen. This is uh, the Kick Aspirational Podcast, Season 1, Episode 11, and I am with Kathleen Falsani. It goes to 11 with <laughs> us today, here and now. This one goes <laughs> to 11 right now. We've been, <laughs> monk, we're, be, we're becoming sound engineers here. Hopefully <laughs> the sound is good on this. Uh, yeah, so, I know. So Kathleen, we've known each other for quite some time. Many, 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 many moons. Many moons. Yes. Uh, so we go back to Wheaton College, another Wheaty here. Yes, indeed. And that's kind of, I think it's fitting to interview Wheaties at this point in the nar- narrative of the podcast, but also mm. you live in Laguna Beach. I do, and I live here because of Wheaton people like yes. yourself and another guy. <laughs> and another guy, uh, <laughs> and my college roommate, yeah. who um, yeah. unfortunately passed away in 2008 uh, when he was doing some pretty remarkable work in Af- Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm. But, um, but let's talk about you today. Okay, I hate that. So I can't ever talk about myself. We've known each other for uh, since, well, probably since 1980. It's been 30 years, Dave. Wow, 88. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. at least 88, yeah. right? Well, that's when I came to Wheaton. So I was a freshman when you were a sophomore. Yeah, I was a year ahead. You were, we, we were both on the newspaper staff together. We were. Your sophomore year, my junior year. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I had been the, the arts and entertainment editor, and you took over that responsibility and probably did a better job. Oh, I don't know about that, but yeah. Um, I think, you know what, I, when we were just talking about this, do you remember Irene Wong? Oh, yeah. She was between you and me. So okay. I think it was you, and then it was her, and then it was me. Okay, got it. She of blessed memory. She passed away jeepers. Oh, I 25 years, 26 years ago, she had a weird kind of cancer and went really quickly. Oh, like, that's too bad. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm uh, sorry to hear that. <laughs> sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Way to bring it down a notch, Balsani. But, um, no, that's okay. So, um... <laughs> But but I think it's it's good for people to know that and and you've had a career in journalism since then. I mean you've I have you've yeah. been uh, you've you were a Sun Times columnist for a long time in religion. I, I was at the, I was a, a reporter and a columnist for the Sun Times for ten years from two thousand to two thousand and ten. 
Like right, it actually, I was still writing for them when we moved out here in 2009. And you met your husband, Maurice Posley. Yes. The Pose. The Pose. Um, you met Maurice, Maury, as we call him. Um, you met Maury when you were... In grad school. In grad school. At Northwestern. Yeah. Yeah. And he was, was he one of your professors? He was one of my professors. Uh, we used to sort of... Do what you can for an that. Do what you can for an <laughs> I was an excellent student. I genuinely was. <laughs> I'm sure you were. I'm sure you were. <laughs> and we've been married 22 years next month. So. 22 years. And, um, for effort. And, and Maury has done pretty well in his journalism career. Yeah, he he's, hasn't had too shabby of a career. It's it's a little longer than mine. He's about 40 years at it. and uh, A lot of awards, including a Pulitzer Prize. The Pulitzer, that's why we call him the Pulitzer. That's why we call him the Pulitzer. Very proud of him. That was that was 10 years ago. I can't believe that. At the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. He was at the Chicago Tribune for a large part of about 30, 30 years of that 40-year career. And, you know, part of the reason I wanted to, to interview you, Kathleen, not just because you're my, my good friend, but I think you've had a very interesting life. And the Kick Aspirational podcast mm-hmm. is all about um, helping people break through barriers in their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the questions I get, like I think it was two weeks ago, I read some questions from a young woman mm-hmm. who was saying, you know, was asking herself questions, why don't I write more? And, uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, part of what my response to her was, it helps if you have an editor, it helps if you have deadlines, and it really helps if you know what audience you're writing for. Yeah. Um, but you've obviously, you and your husband professionally have written for a lot of publications. You've mm-hmm. published books, you're mm-hmm. an author, um, you've had a long-term column. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at some point I'd like to try and get into, you know, how, how to talk to other people about writing for publications. Sure. I think that could be interesting. But first, let's talk about your career a little bit mm-hmm. and, and how you got into it. So you... At Wheaton College, you studied journalism? Well, there was no journalism program, remember, but there, I, I, I took every journalism two, right? class yeah. I could get my hands on, right. including photojournalism. Right. Um, wow. So I was a, th- a French and English double major, Great. so very uh, marketable, both of those things, almost like a philosophy degree. Yeah, um, well, you know, when you, when you mix it with a political <laughs> science degree, it becomes... We'll think for food, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which has been, it's worked out pretty well for you, David. We'll use my brain for whatever, whatever I can figure out. Yeah, so I did that, but I got the bug uh, doing journalism when I was at Wheaton. I grew up in a family um, that, especially my father, consumed just loads and loads of, of news, um, newspapers, magazines. We had the New York Times, I think every day, certainly on Sundays, the big like three pound right. newspaper. Because I grew up in Connecticut, so you got the local sections too. So it was this enormous thing. I always worry about those poor paper boys. I know. I mean, huff those things around. And these were the unfoldable kinds. They were just like a brick. Yeah. Of, uh, it was like an old fashioned laptop. We still get the, we get the weekend edition. Still. I know. That's massive. Bless your heart for that. Um, but we used to get that and all the New York the New York Times, Newsweek, um, Time Magazine, the local newspaper, um, and a few others growing up. So my dad was from New Hampshire, which doesn't have a, any professional sports team. So politics was the sport there. Right. And so I grew up just being very aware of news, very aware of writing, very aware of journalism and how important it was. My earliest, one of my earliest memories, it, it's probably close to my very earliest memory, is sitting in my parents' kitchen in our apartment in Stamford, Connecticut in 1973, must have been 73, uh, the day that Nixon resigned. Was it 73 or 74? Uh, it was right in there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I was, you know, three years old, sitting yeah. in the high chair, and we had a little um, portable black and white television with like a five-inch screen or something. Right. And it was, that my parents used to watch the McNeil Lara News Hour on PBS, and 
they were covering it live, I guess. And I remember saying, Daddy, who's that? And my father said, he's a bad man. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> you know, my, that's my, one of my first memories, too. My is first it? political memory is actually the students at Towson State taking over an administration building and setting up. I think they started a fire in there because I, I think I remember smoke coming out. Oh, wow. But um, That's when you were in Maryland? When, yeah, my father was in medical school. At Johns, Johns Hopkins, Hopkins, yeah. And, uh, and my dad wanted us, he put us, in, my brother and I in the Mustang, he had a little Mustang, he put, put us in the Mustang and drove us over there to, to show us the hippies. But, um, <laughs> Those are hippies, but then, boys. Keep a distance. But no, I think he thought it was just really important. You know, there's a lot of unrest, yeah. a lot of um, a lot of discussion at that time. And my mm-hmm. parents kind of were on both sides. They were very open-minded, um, probably more conservative. But, I, you know, they, um, my father was going to have to go into Viet, you know, to, into the armed dad forces. Was in service. Yeah, well, right after that, as okay. soon as he was done with medical school, he had to go into the um, Air Force Medical Corps, and so I think he was, you know, he was just paying a lot of close attention to yeah. that, obviously. Um, but then my my first my first real political memory is we were at my grandparents' house in Wisconsin, and uh, my mom's parents, and my dad sat us down in front of the television because mm. Nixon was resigning on TV. So I think mm. it might have been seventy four. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was a little later than seventy three. I think it was seventy, maybe seventy four, seventy five ish. Mm. We'll, we'll have to look it up. I don't, I don't know. I'm guessing. I, guessing. All I remember is that Mark, my my younger brother, who you also yeah. know, speaking of military, sure, uh, was not in the kitchen because he would have been screaming and throwing food. So yeah. I, I think it was, and he was born in seventy four. So it maybe was late seventy three. Who knows? Yeah, we'll look we'll, it up. We'll have to look it up. But um, but yeah, it was it was also my first real political memory. Mm-hmm. My dad just said this is this is really important. You need mm-hmm. to remember this. And then we're sitting there watching. I remember watching him resign. I didn't really understand what it meant, mm-hmm. but uh, but now obviously we all do. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of I, I think as Gen Xers, I think that kind of informed our whole political experience, right? Yeah, it really did. I mean, and our parents are my parents are a little older than your parents are, um, but you know they lived through. I mean, the Kennedy assassination, Dr. King's life and death were big in my household. They right. were not distant memories. They were something that my parents lived through in their 20s. And so, I, I don't know, I was just uh, plugged in in a way that my my own son, who's he'll be 19, it isn't. You know, we don't sit down and watch the TV news together. Um, we, we don't read newspapers at the table like we used to. We, everybody reads individually online at their computers. And I think the awareness of um, political and just social realities are not quite the same as when we were coming up. There's no Walter Cronkite for, no. for this generation. No. Although I think John Stewart may have been a, a yeah, a close I desperately second. miss that man. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, well, it's it's funny because I think you know I worked for Susie Garman at mm-hmm. the American Enterprise Institute, who was the op-ed page editor for the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. and she was doing a book on scandal. Her husband, Len Garman, was That's Nixon's right. attorney, and um, she she said that um, you know in in her book on political scandal, one of the things that she kind of uh, talked a lot about was that you know during the Kennedy administration you mm-hmm. still had these like Camelot years. The press was very respectful of the office. Oh yeah, um, and almost it was almost like the president could do no wrong. Right. Um, and and the the role of the presidency hadn't really grown. It was a very still a fairly weak presidency mm-hmm. where it's it'd been it's been growing quite a bit, especially in the last decade or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so one of the things that she said was you know when when um, Woodward and Bernstein mm-hmm. broke the Watergate uh, story and got such big recognition for it. Um, they won. Did they win? They won a Pulitzer. Pulitzer, yeah. right? Or, um, or I don't know if they did individually or if it was the Washington Post as a organization did, but it was for that reporting. But that was like career instead of being career ending, which it might have been during the Kennedy years oh, yeah. or, or before. Just a few years before. It became sure. the way that you 
broke out of, uh, you know, into books and other bigger opportunities. Right. And it kind of changed. Well, it changed the way journalism was done. It transformed for, journalism. For right. print journalism. Right. Um, I mean, that's, I, I remember, I used to go to movies with my dad. My mother didn't like to go to films. Um, my father was a huge cinephile. So at the very early age, I went to see films. That means that he I, liked movies. Yes. Yes. <laughs> cinephile. Um, I went to see movies that I, that I probably had no business seeing. But, and I don't know if... All the President's Men would have been one of those or not. But I, I definitely saw that fairly early in my life. Right. And that was when I thought about being a journalist. That's what I thought of right. a journalist was. About Woodward and Bernstein. Woodward and, and Bernstein. Breaking, breaking scandals. And, and you know, the, and it, so it kind of shifted the focus of media to um, a more, you know, kind of being more of like a fourth estate effectively, right? It doing its, the job that it was checking sort of envisioned other, to do, which yeah. was checking power. Checking right? power. Um, and and having a role where they really felt empowered to do that. Right. Which, you know, today oh, <laughs> we're in a place where it's, it's hard to tell what, what's legitimately part of the fourth estate and which, what, what isn't. Who's really doing... Those of us uh, inside of it have a pretty good idea who's in a new yeah, job, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's almost like there's been, you know, with the demise of newspapers and, you know, the economics have yeah. fundamentally changed, right. which has led to kind of heavy disruption in the category, mm -hmm. which means that you have... You know the bright parts of the world uh, and the the left wing version of bright Pro, part ProPublica and and yeah. I mean any number of other, a lot of you know my Pro propaganda has become part of the fourth estate. Now, oh, right? I, okay, uh, yes, it has, and I in ProPublica would not be propaganda, but I, I meant like other uh, media entities that are not or just say newspapers heavy bias. Or, yeah. yeah, but yeah, now we have this space where it's like, well, that's fake news, and everybody it well. Breitbart is not a news service. It's a propaganda organization. And maybe you can make some arguments about that with some broadcast media entities. But largely speaking, and I, if my bias is showing, then so be it, straight journalism, real hard shoe gum journalism is still being done by lots of print journalists all, and some broadcast people all right. over the country. Sure. In big newspapers and small newspapers. Um, and, it's, and, and they are... They're well, not trying to gotcha anybody. They're out there trying to tell whether it's the story of the bodega down the street that's getting evicted or it's the latest atrocity that this president is involved in. They're out there doing the job, just trying to figure out what the facts of the matter are and present them in an unbiased fashion. And we've had a lot of conversations about this. I think there's there's better sources. If you're really trying to find objective news, like an, a yeah. journalist who's really trying to just get to what the heck right. happened here, what are the facts. Right. I mean, NPR has a great news, news source. Um, mm -hmm. Al Jazeera, strangely. No, Al, Al Jazeera has been a go-to for me for years, especially for religion coverage. And I would the only thing I'd exclude with Al Jazeera is coverage of Israel or, well, yeah. or you know, yeah. some of the Middle East stuff. But in, when you're covering American news or European news, mm -hmm. um, you know, everything outside of that, they seem to be really objective, mm -hmm. um, more than you, you might suspect. And I think in a, in a, a moment of, a moment of, a moment, a moment of consistent trauma, which we are in, Right. here in the United States, I find myself increasingly drawn to people outside looking in. So I read sure. The Guardian a lot, right. way well, I, more than I would have a few years ago. Yeah, we subscribe to The Economist, which mm -hmm. I think is in the same same vein in a way. Mm -hmm. BBC is another favorite mm -hmm. of ours here. Yep. Um, you, just get a, you get a different perspective when people aren't in the middle of it. Right. And, um, and are, you know, and, and, you know, obviously it's people outside the country too, so you get a, it definitely has a British flavor in those two cases. It does. But... Um, yeah, I, th I think it's fascinating to try and as you're these days, I think sifting through 
what information is like the source becomes right. almost more important than than the content because you start to wonder like where does this where right does this I start? mean I think it, it, the demise or the winnowing certainly of, of American newspapers was painful I'm, that's that was my industry that was my husband's industry that was what most of our friends did right um, that it was painful it's not gone away altogether it can't go all away altogether we see how important that is and it, it is coming back um, but uh, I think it's a good thing that people are more aware of how they're consuming news and right. where it comes from. Sure. Um, and there's a learning curve for a lot of people. There was a learning curve for even those of us inside of it. But I think uh, we're talking about Woodward and Bernstein, where you know uh, Woodward's new book, Fear, on the on the Trump presidency came out yesterday. Right. And there you see somebody. There've <laughs> been lots Trump of these. Can't stop tweeting about. <laughs> good Lord, that man. Um, Somebody take the car keys away from dad. It's time. Um, you know, he, there have been a lot of expose books, some worse than others that have come out. And then you see somebody like Woodward who you can say what you want about him as a person, as a human, what his personality is, whatever. He's an excellent journalist. He has a long history of, of doing great investigation. And he's journalism. a Republican. He's from Wheaton, in fact. He is from Wheaton. Did not go to Wheaton College, but grew up in the town of Wheaton, Illinois. Right. And so here's, you know, the, 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 the phone calls coming from inside the house. I mean, he's in the party that ostensibly this president is representing. I don't even know what to say about that man. I try not to say very much about him. Um, but anyway, so here he is and he went in and not only, I mean, the man has, as we say these days, receipts. Right. I mean, he might be quoting anonymous sources. They're anonymous because he said he would protect them. He knows who they are. He's got hundreds of hours of tape. He's, and just to see somebody do that kind of journalism where it's like, no, you said this, I've got it on tape. And um, there's kind of, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in there unless you just lie for yeah, and he's clearly. I mean, he look. He's been vetted for decades. Oh, God, I mean, yeah. Deep Throat clearly was a was a real source we know yeah, now. Right? Was it Halderman? I forget who it was. Yes, I forget who it was. But it, that, that's but, all. And come then out. he kept yeah. that he kept until it. the man died, and that's what released him from it. I mean, a lot right. of people wouldn't, but right. he did. No, and I think so. Anyways, yeah. Getting getting past that, let's get back to you because I think this is all interesting. <laughs> um, we don't want to get it's the journalist in me. I'm deflecting to look. Let's talk about other people. Yeah, we don't want to go down that rabbit yeah, hole. No, no. We'll be here all, all day. Um, <laughs> But I, but I think to more to the point, you know, there's there's a per, like almost a preponderance of information, mm, yeah. and you're trying to figure out what's actually fact, mm-hmm. and that requires more discernment now than our parents had to have. Yes, yeah, or that you and I needed to have when we were in in college. Right. It's not like we have three channels you get your news from, yeah. or, the, or a local paper that you read every day. Right. You've got all this stuff hitting you from all sides, and so as as getting back to you, as as mm-hmm. you're going through your career, you you worked on the paper, you took all the journalism you could mm-hmm. uh, at Wheaton. Did you go straight to graduate school? Um, I did have a season of making lattes. And, uh, <laughs> and, awesome. you, and you might recall that my first job uh, out of Wheaton was as an associate editor for a small Christian feminist uh, magazine called Daughters of Sarah. So I was m- making lattes and working for these wonderful um, aging lesbians. Oh, I'm sorry, well... <laughs> Some of the more aging feminists up on the north side of Chicago. Not all feminists are lesbians. Not all, that's right. No, I, I didn't mean that. Um, no, no, you didn't. Uh, but anyway, so the, yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm I thinking just, of something. I was literally that, trying to be funny. Then, you know, I know you yeah, were, but yeah. I, I, this, the the feedback in my head is my best friend Kelly, another friend of ours from Wheaton. Her father, who's a much more conservative man than I am, 
um, still to this day calls it Daughters of Lesbos or Sisters of Lesbos instead of Daughters <laughs> of Sarah. So I, I'm sorry, I was, Mr. Anderson's feedback was playing in the back of my mind. Anyway, um, so I worked for them for a season when I was trying to figure out what the next step was. I knew I wanted to do journalism. I knew I wanted to work for the mainstream secular media um, and wanted to see if there was a way to get into it. And this was in 92, 93. The job market was terrible. So I quickly realized that I needed more training to be able to bigfoot my way into a, a newspaper. So I went to graduate school for journalism at Northwestern, and I also went and got a master's degree in theological studies because I wanted to cover religion. And then how did you end up from graduate school ending, you know, ending up at, a, at the Sun-Times to having a column? Um, so right out of uh, journalism school, I got an internship at the Chicago Tribune, and I worked there for, I think it was six months, um, working on the, I worked on the digital side. This was just as they were starting to launch websites for, for uh, um, newspapers. Um, and this was sort of local reporting for the digital side very, very early on. And then I went and I worked for the City Desk in the actual newspaper in the newsroom downtown. Um, and, and then you ended up... And then I went from there and I got a, a few months later, I got a job at a, uh, re- a local suburban paper called the Daily South Town on the south side of south suburbs of Chicago. And I was there for about a year and a half and kept applying for everything that opened at both the Sun-Times and the Tribune. And I finally was persistent enough that I got a job at the Sun-Times as a suburban reporter. And at the time, I knew, but they didn't know that their religion reporter was going to be leaving. So I got hired to cover the South Suburbs. And six weeks later, Ernie left and I got the job. Awesome. And I, the reason I wanted to get to this is because I, you, you published a book. I think this is the first book you wrote. Was it uh, a collection of The God of Factor? Your, yes. Yeah, The God yeah. Factor. Yeah, 2006. Um, this was a collection of all your kind of highlight interviews from those years as a Some as a of them were, right? right some of, it started as a project in the newspaper. Um, and the very first interview I did for it was with Barack Obama. When, and he, when he was a state senator. When he was a state senator, when he was running for his Senate seat in the U.S. Senate. And, and that interview has become fairly well known because a lot of people were questioning because of all the, getting back to some of the, the, Muslim, the unusual news sources we have in America yeah. now. People were saying he was Muslim. People were saying he wasn't born in America, mm-hmm. um, which both seem to be factually incorrect. Yes. But, mo- but a lot of people pointed to your interview with him when he was a state senator when nobody cared what his religion was. Well, and, and, and to his credit, he it was probably one of the, the last long-form interviews he ever did without a, a staff and security and everything else there with him. And it was the only interview he did at, of any length about his faith ever. Right. It still is. And he very clearly time. articulated a, a Christian faith to, at that point. I was sitting across the table from him, and that's what I heard. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. So but it's been inch, that in that interview is interesting in that it's it's almost like a litmus test for the reader's own self-identity. Like if you right. come to it and you think he's a closet Muslim and he's a bad person and he's certainly not a Christian and you read what he says, somehow you can see that confirmed. If you come to it thinking that, you know, he's not any of those things that he's probably a Christian like he says he is. And you read what he says, then that's usually confirmed. Right. And he's also, I mean, look, he's, he went to, when he went to Harvard and Columbia, is that right? That's right. Yeah. I can't remember exactly, but you know, he's a very well-educated man. He's worked across a lot of, in South Chicago, you work across the, um, you know, the nation of Islam, oh, which yeah. is Muslim. You work with Christians. He really closely with the Jewish community for with years. With the Jewish community. Yeah. He attended a Christian church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
you know, so also, you know, having probably a broader view of people's faith was a natural component of the work yeah, that he well, was and doing. And, and, where he and was also personal. where he grew up. I mean, right. he was, his grandparents were from the Midwest and they were, you know, mainstream, main, mainline Protestants. His father was from Kenya. He didn't know him very well, but then he lived in um, Indo- Indonesia, right? I think so. Yeah, just after he was born there. With his, his stepfather. So yeah, ha ha ha. With his when he spent his you know it's part of his grammar school years living in a an a, dom, a predominantly Muslim country. Right. Where he went to a Catholic school. Right. Because instead of and I think he might even have been in Madrasa at some point because that was the the school that was available or sure. whatever. But he's he's always been uh, influenced by multiculturalism when it comes to religion. But the thing that impressed me, and I don't get to say this very often about his interview, apart from the fact that he was so candid, was that there were a couple of times where he explained something to me that had happened to him. He was talking about the morning he walked up the aisle uh, to the altar at Trinity in Chicago and and made his public statement of of faith, being a born-again Christian. Now, if you have if you hear that with ears like mine that were Southern Baptist at one point, you're like, oh, that's when he gave his heart to Jesus. Right, in the evangelical community, that's like the litmus test. Yeah. yeah. Did you stand up and did you tell people? Did you say the magic did words? Did you say the magic words? Yeah. Did you give the secret handshake? So he did all that. And we went on to talk about something else. And he stopped himself and went back without me asking to correct and clarify. He didn't want people to think that that was the moment when he met Jesus. He's like, that was my outward confirmation of a process that had been going on with my relationship with God for right. a long time. It's it's similar. You know, it's funny. Um, I was on a church surf trip when we were both going to Little <laughs> Church here in Laguna, uh-huh. which is kind of a more evangelical, yeah. um, I wouldn't say fundamentalist, but no. it's more evangelical. Traditionally fundamentalist. Um, yeah, tra- yeah, could be traditional. Some people there are. And one of the um, elders there wanted to ask me about when I you know, when I became a Christian mm. and, uh, and I said, well, you know, I was kind of born into it, you know, and, and my, my story was, I said, well, you know, I was born into a home with parents who had me baptized as an infant. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to church twice on Sunday. We went to Sunday school. Mm-hmm. There was a point where, you know, I prayed that prayer and there was a point where I made a profession of faith when I was like 18. Sure. But I said, for me, those were more like graduations right. rather than decision points moment. or like I wasn't a Christian then I was a Christian. It's like I was always kind of in it. Right. And there's just yeah. points where you're like, oh yeah, okay, I guess I should probably just put a pin in it here. Um, versus, you know, I was, you know, these, these big testimonials you get, you know, in some of the Christian churches where somebody wasn't born into it didn't know what it was, had some life-altering moment, and boom, it all changed for them. And I think that speaks more to a lived experience of uh, a section of Christian society in the last 50 years that is expecting this cross in the switchblade right. moment where you know, you had a life without Jesus and then you had that magic moment and it's only a moment where you met him and opened the door and he walked in and then everything changed for the better. Right. And by the way, then everything changed. Right. And if you backslide or you 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 don't, you know, things don't go perfectly, then, you right. know, somehow you're, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're failing. Where I think, I think it's very normal for people to go through ups and downs and good days and bad days exactly. and all that sort of thing. Exactly. And I think the longer in the tooth we get, the more we tend to understand that it's a journey, it's a process, <laughs> it's a commitment, a recommitment every day, every moment, every breath. So that it's, it's not about stay, stepping into the transponder and 
stepping <laughs> out the other side on Jesus Mountain. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it, it's 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 much more complicated. It's much more nuanced than that, and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, and I think it, and it's also it's part of a hopefully part of a, a communal journey. I mean, we're yeah. all pilgrims, and it's right. pretty hard to do it on your own. And right. and we you know part of it is helping other people you know get back up when they fall down in a way. I think. Exactly. So you also, you know, speaking about um, Barack, you also interviewed, one of my favorites was with Hugh Hefner. Oh, Hef, yeah. Yeah. All, he's passed away now. I know, but, and it's, uh, very, it's a very unpopular moment for a woman, especially a feminist woman, um, to have anything nice to say about somebody like Hugh Hefner. But I, I, I'm very aware of what he did in the world with his business and how exploitative it was in many senses um, for a lot of women. And it wasn't empowering and it wasn't, perhaps life-giving and healthy and egalitarian and any of those things. But I met a man who was in his 80s at his house one day in Los Angeles, and he was vulnerable, and he was kind, and he was honest. And um, he treated me with a great deal of respect, and we had a, a moment, a spiritual moment together, where I think we, we, we surprised each other, and we were in my view was surprised by grace and by God's presence between the two of us. And that was precious to me. And what was his kind of, he had more of a spiritual take on faith than, than religious. Is that right? Yeah, no, he, he's literally a descendant of the, of the pilgrims. Like you, so Puritanism is, is in his bloodstream. Um, but he grew up in a house that was nominally religious. They went through the motions, but there was not a whole lot of, um, outward displays of affection for the children. Um, it was a very cold home that he grew up in. And he married a woman. Uh, his first wife was, was Roman Catholic. And uh, the day that went out the window was the day she went in to talk to her priest about, this must have been right around Vatican II, talking to the priest about birth control. And he hummed some song about the rhythm method, and that was it. Yeah, so, and she never went back, and he was like, great, I don't have to go there either. Um, but he thought a lot, and I don't know if this was throughout his lifetime or just more toward the end, um, but he thought a lot about um, about God and about the meaning of how we live and why we live the way we do. And he, I mean, he had given a lot of thought of, of, uh, to these issues and these ideas in his life. And he had a very, it was very unorthodox, but he had a, a sort of a playboy theology of right. things that he thought were the way you should behave in the world. And, and I'm not defending not right. playboy um Certainly had my fair share of them in my clubhouse growing up, but uh, yeah, same. But no. the you know, but but I think what was interesting, if if you go back in time and you look at the morality of the time and what mm -hmm. he thought he was doing, I think he thought he was participating in the sexual revolution, yes, which was kind of discarding some of the the more traditional Oppressive. views of sexuality yes. and kind of trying to progress and move forward. Right. Um, definitely a lot of uh, a lot of casualties probably in that one. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, you know, that was his intent, I think. I don't think it, it was, was and it was purely, part and yeah. parcel, as I understand it, and as how he articulated it to me, and I thought he was being genuine when he did, that it was all part of what he was also doing at the time, which was in, involved in civil rights and racial rights and um, other kinds of um, justice issues. They were all tied up in a social justice movement Trying to him. establish broader freedoms for people. Yes, um, even though maybe the way it was executed wasn't wasn't a flawless, let's just say. No. Um, so that was a pretty great one. I, I just remember that coming out and looking through the list of, of interviews, and it was really <laughs> fascinating. And help me understand: is that a, did you meet Jack Keyslip around that time? 
I didn't meet Jack until maybe about 10 years ago. Okay. So Jack Heeslip, um, some of you will recognize the name. Some of you know who he is. He, Jack was um, a Church of Ireland uh, priest, although he didn't really call himself a priest. Is that Anglican? Uh, Anglican, or it would yeah. be Pis- the, of, which is the Episcopalian, of yeah. yeah. Um, Church of Ireland. So the Anglican Church in Ireland is the Church of Ireland. And uh, he was better known, although not very well known, even in fa- to fans, as the longtime chaplain for the band U2. S- since the boys were in middle school, right? Um, he was their guidance counselor when they were in junior high <laughs> yeah. at, their, at Mount Temple, which was a really interesting school at the time. This is in the 70s in the Republic of Ireland. It was one of the first, or perhaps even the first, school organized for Protestant and Catholic kids to stand, attend school together. So if he was the guidance counselor for Bono, the Edge, who yeah. oh, wasn't called the Edge then, Dave. Adam, Dave, yeah. Yeah, like that. nobody calls him Dave, um, <laughs> Larry and Adam and Bono and uh, Edge, yeah, that's really cool. The uh, Bono was probably called Paul back then, but briefly. I wait, now and, and interestingly, I believe Jack told me that Jack's wife was Bono's Sunday school teacher when he was like three or four years old. So the you know she knew him just out of nappies and. Uh, then Jack met him when he was still called Paul. And you brought, you brought Jack to Laguna. I did. They were, this was a few, I think it was the summer of 2006, 2007, whatever that big tour was. Um, they were doing five or six you nights know, We were LA. living here, so it must have been after 2008. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. That's right. It was 2000, it was six or seven years ago. So it was 2010, 2011, yeah, whatever that tour was. Yeah. Uh, you know when it, it was uh, when the Edge and Bono had been had done the score for that um, Spider-Man musical in New York. Oh yeah, and they and, they, they had it in the, yeah. and they were relaunching it. And so there was a break in the tour where I knew Jack was going to be in L.A. for like a week or ten days with some downtime, and I knew that he didn't get to preach very often. And so I said, "Hey, would you want to come and talk to our little? It's literally called Little Church by the Sea. It's this sweet little place, and you know we." I think you'd probably enjoy it, and and he did, and that was one and Jeff, of my. Jeff Tacklin had him come in. Jeff Tacklin, the pastor there at Little Church by the Sea, had him come in, and he spoke, the, did both services one morning, and and still one of my favorite moments from living here it was, was having phenomenal. him, and then having him at my house for a couple of days was beautiful. And too. his message was, uh, well, so he had kind of an interesting message about kind of resting in God's sovereignty, right? Yeah, uh, yes. I don't know that he would have used those words, but yeah, it was the idea was that or being any, lazy. He said literally being lazy in God's sovereignty. I think yes, that yeah. you can you can lavish and relax there because whatever you think you have as the best idea for your life or the best plans for your life, that God has so much more um, in store for us. He wants to lavish so much more grace and love and joy on us than we could even fathom. Right. And um, it was, yeah, I just, I remember he would, exactly. I, I remember he said he was, at one point he, he had been asked to apply for a, a temporary priest role someplace. And they yeah. said, the church said, what are your, what are your biggest, you know, best qualities? And he <laughs> said, well, I think my best quality is I'm lazy in God's sovereignty. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, if we really believe in it, maybe we should act like it. Yeah, not, uh, stop being so nervous all the time. Be open to what God wants. Just stop trying to control everything. Um, so that so you you brought him here. I think we, he was at our, our home yeah, here. We're yeah, sitting in Vander Hollow right now. And he was just, I can picture him leaning deck, up against yeah, the glass and taking pictures of your view, in fact. Yeah, it was, it was wonderful. Yeah. And that... 
that allowed um, us to work together. I used him uh, for I think two chapters in the Rob Bell Companion. That's guy. right. Yes. And yeah. You had him, and he was write a, a he wrote a the, chapter in the uh, a book that Jennifer Grant and I co-edited a few years ago that you also wrote a chapter for. Um, called Disquiet Time, and then... Uh, unfo- disquiet Time. Disquiet Time. Not that quiet time. This, no, disquiet. disquiet Time. It was a takeoff of the... This, in evangelical circles, certainly when we were growing up, people would ask, how was your quiet time with the Lord? And I always thought, I never got quiet. And if, it's more it, disquieted. Yeah, if you're reading the Bible, you're going to be really uncomfortable a lot of the time. So that's where it came from. And and sadly, we, we lost Jack not long after uh, right. the book was published. So. From, did he have pancreatic cancer? No, it was, um, we call it ALS. Oh, they call right, it ALS. Um, auto, autoimmune disorder. Or mu- motor neuron disease. Yeah. It, ALS is what it was. They just call it something different. Shuts down. Yeah, and he went in about six months. Sweet man. Sweet man. Marvelous uh, man. Rob Bell and I met with him in Montreal when the band was there. Yeah, wonderful I remember that. Room. Yeah, thank you for you helping did, us. You had, you had a time just kind of walking around and talking to him. It was really cool. Really cool. Great uh, great man and, and dearly missed the Irish sage. The, the Irish sage. Yes, he is dearly. The, but the band, when he died, the band called him their Polaris, their North Star. And he just, I don't think I'd, I've ever met anybody who was more comfortable in his own skin and more comfortable in his... Uh, faith in in that in the relationship with this god that, of grace that we all talk about i mean he really i think knew god and was super comfortable with yeah who god was and with who he was and he was by he started he got to a point pretty quickly where he wanted to bypass religion and just go straight to the source yeah i mean he was a priest who he was like don't, don't call me that don't call me a priest don't connect me to this structure no i'm, I'm just Jack. talking to the man himself right yeah and um and he used to go at the u2 shows he used to walk and pray he used to walk the, the, the perimeter of wherever they were playing so you know the perimeter of um, soldier field in chicago or of the forum in la and um you know during the setup and and uh sound check and stuff and he would bless the corners of it and he would pray for the people who were going to be there and he minister i mean he was their chaplain to the four guys in the band but m- more importantly he um was there to walk with the 200 plus people who are the small city that moves with them when they're on tour for months because there's a lot going on when you have that many people on tour there's family issues there's there's all kinds of things Mm so um he was busy very busy yeah yeah very very busy man but uh that his his gentle and comp and what's the word i want to look i'm not finding it um he had this just it's like the idea of hygge in in Scandinavian um, decorating circles or whatever about like coziness. Yeah, he had this this wisdom and this faith that you just wanted to sink into like a overstuffed chair. In German, they say gemütlichkeit. Sure. <laughs> Cozy time. <laughs> yeah. Um, or you know, gitschmatlich in in Dutch. But the mm-hmm. so I think um, you know, the thing that was interesting to me is you know you've introduced us to the band. Um, We've met Bono a couple times mm-hmm. through you. We've gotten. You're my tall friend. You've gotten. Yeah. <laughs> How's your tall friend? How's your tall friend? <laughs> We've had so many great times, though. Um, and just getting, you know, access to shows where we wouldn't normally get it. Um, and, and the thing that I love about you, too, I mean, the music's great. I love the band. But there's something that comes out of those concerts that's mm-hmm. different than mm-hmm. just the music. There's mm-hmm. there's a depth and a soul to it mm-hmm. and a connection that. And maybe it's because, you know, I know Jack and you know the band so well and, and Jack, but it, or we did, mm-hmm. but it just feels like there's something that really happens there that's different. It, I, I think there is, and I know it's very intentional. Yeah. So, I mean, ev- everybody who performs, especially at that level, has 
pretty well crafted ideas of the experience that they want the fans or the people in the audience to have. And so there, there certainly is that they're very fan forward. They're very, they're all about the experience of the people come to see them, but it's not just about how it sounds and how it looks. They want people to feel a certain, they want people to have uh, the option to feel a certain thing and to think about things and to also feel how connected they are to each other. Right. It's not just about them coming and, you know, marveling at, at Adam Clayton's magnificent shock of white hair or <laughs> the edges pogoing up and down. I mean, he's a 57, almost 58 year old man who can jump up and down while holding a guitar and playing it like nobody else in the universe for hours on end. And right. they still have energy afterwards. I don't know where it comes They're from. Still party afterwards. Yeah, he's yeah. amazing. Um, you know, and then although he didn't outparty my wife in Mexico City, no, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sissy and Iris broke the tequila bar. <laughs> they did. Yeah, Chewbacca, the bartender, was uh, was moved. It was powerful. I wish I had been able to stay. I had to go to Japan. I know. Uh, See what were... happens when I leave. My wife, my wife parties in she for both of us. Shuts down the back the after party. Um, yeah, the the and a lot of that comes from the faith. I don't want to say faith because it makes it sound like something that they cart around like a trophy or like, oh, wow, haven't they achieved this thing? It's like, well, no, there's this humility and this profundity to the experience that that they have had, that most of them have had with, with God, that they shared with Jack in a way that he articulated and helped shape. And I sort of, I still see Jack's fingerprints all over what they do and how they do it. Um, Deeply profound. Yeah, and it, it's, they, they want... They don't want people to believe a certain thing. No. They're, they in fact, even the political, I know they have specific very, political yes, ideas. Yeah. But they've also had, they've also realized that, you know, to be effective, I love the RBG, the Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg mm -hmm. documentary. Mm -hmm. um, she had a very specific, you know, agenda that she was, she, she continues to be focused on, which is helping women have an equal standing in society. Right. Um, but when, when she, when she, ran into opposition you know i think what was interesting in the documentaries it said you know she rather than react to or or um you know when when she was asked difficult questions or was put on the spot she learned rather than confront to help bring people along mm -hmm. and i think what they're really great at whether it's the one campaign or mm -hmm. whether it's how bono engaged the world basically mm -hmm. And the Treasury Secretary on on <laughs> debt. Anybody else? Um, rather Holmes. than rather than be angry with them or or you know make fun of them or do something rude to them, he he brought them along, and 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 I think that's what what they do well with anything political, anything religious, they do. and anything. Um, you know, There's something bigger going on. Yeah, it's bigger than all of us. And it's not about them. I think they're no. really clear that you don't have to agree with them. No. This isn't about this isn't about their personality right. and your personality. This is about a much bigger oneness right. that we can all be a part of if we can get past our pettiness and start to see that everyone's made out of people. We're all human and we're trying exactly. to go someplace together. Yeah. And I mean, even on the there, the boys are in Europe right now. The, the European leg of their current tour just started a couple weeks ago. And when they finished the North American tour, um, I thought back on some of the, the themes and how the themes are different now in, in Europe than they were here. But one of the things that Bono talked explicitly about from the stage during the U.S. tour was about compromise. You know, we, we're so polar, polarized right now, and it's not popular to say something about right. compromise, but he, he's, he's a man who's very um, focused and very clear about wanting to help poor people not die because they're poor and people with HIV and AIDS not die because they don't 
can't have afford to get that. Medicine, yeah. So he doesn't care who he has to work with to, to accomplish that. Yeah. yeah, and right now, there's it's just such a chaotic and just absolutely crazy and unprecedented time in many ways. And we're so angry and we're so polarized. And he's like, you know, the only way forward is to figure out some kind of compromise to work together on whatever it is. How do we how do we have a functional government again? I mean, I think, right. and I'm not just pointing the finger in one direction. I think both sides, you know, we have a binary situation going right. on that's yeah. that's broken down. Um, and, but but I think what's to your point, I think I think social media you see this even more kind of exacerbated. But the it's the idea I think that when when an idea is tied personally to us or tied explicitly to our egos, mm-hmm. people get very very petty. Yeah. And it happens right. at the highest levels of our government right, right now. And when it's about your identity and how you you think your self worth well, is well, especially if you know, created. let's say you were a reality TV star, and <laughs> and your identity and your brand are tied to an idea or a battle, mm-hmm. it becomes very very difficult to separate your ego and right. your personality from an idea, which makes it very very hard to compromise or find common ground or actually come together and unify. Right. And I think um, I've been reading a lot of you know this last couple weeks when I was traveling in Asia I was reading like Deep and Simple mm. by Bo Lozoff I was reading Mr. Rogers books <laughs> um, which are fantastic his biography is unbelievable yeah. the man is like I wish I had you know, if there's one person I could have dinner with living or dead Mr. Rogers right. Fred Rogers would be right up yeah. there but but I think you know um, what's been kind of and as I've been meditating more one of the things that's been you know really clarifying for me and helping me just with a lot of different things that are going on in my life is when you can separate your ego from the thing that's upsetting you mm-hmm. and when you can observe your anger or observe your reaction observe your frustration mm-hmm. um, it gives you the possibility to see past yourself right and to really hopefully have some empathy and, and try and understand the other there's this uh, singer-songwriter David Wilcox um, from Asheville North Carolina who I, who's a friend and who I've loved for years has always been one of my um, constant uh, musical passions has been David's music and uh, we were were talking earlier this year um, and he he's an incredibly thoughtful person who's done a lot of work on himself spiritually and otherwise and is all about community and helping people understand themselves and he talks about wanting being more interested in the want in the need underneath the want right so in in the the soul need underneath the ego grab whatever whatever it is and usually when we're reacting emotionally that way um it's it's because we something that we feel is is deep deeply needed to our continuing existence in the world is being threatened right but most of us don't take the time when we're reacting to to think about well why why is it why am i reacting like this yeah right why, why am I reacting in, in this way that you can't reason with me? Right. Or I stopped to, to, stop to see the humanity in you. Why do I stop listening yeah. to the other person, yeah. right? I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it gets to this whole point of, of how, do we, uh, how do we remove ourselves, how do we remove our ego from this conversation mm-hmm. and get into a real conversation about, and, and you know, I guess part of the, the assumption there is that there are other people who are listening to this who want to be selfless, right? Right, yeah, yeah. Um, there are some people who say, well, why would I remove myself from the conversation? That's what it's all about. Um, but, but I think for me, it's, it's certainly I was raised with this idea that, you know, it's not all about you, yeah. it, uh, even though sometimes we act like it. <laughs> what? Um, well, the says, human what? condition is to sort of think that we're the center of the universe. But, you know, it, it's interesting when talking about um, how, do I, how do I get out of my own way? 
Sure. It's all tying back to the the U2 has a song out on their new album that's called Get Out of Your Own Way um, <laughs> that I think is is probably, I haven't unpacked it with the songwriter, but I'm guessing that some of that might have come from Jack. Uh, at least that's right. what he projected a lot of. It's just, sure. here, stop it. You're just causing trouble for yourself. But when we were talking about that interview that I did with Hef at the Playboy Mansion many years ago, and I owe it, I had a, I had a, a prayer. I still, I still say it or think about it at least um, before I sit down to talk with anybody, including as I was driving up here to come talk to you. Help me get out of my own way and make the connections that we wouldn't make on our own. Right. Um, and I remember pulling up in front of the Playboy Mansion, literally like past the Bunnies at Play signed, and. Um, sitting there in the car and taking a second and going, okay, I know I always pray this, but I really mean it this time and help me to leave my preconceived motions in the car because it's really hard to do that when you're walking into the Playboy Mansion. Yeah, as, a, as a, you know, as a, you have a background with feminism, obviously, yeah. and uh, to walk into the Playboy Mansion is a little, a little, it could, could seem anti, antithetical to who yeah, you are. Yeah. I like, I like those paradoxical spaces, as you know, but um yeah, I'm walking in and then, okay, we're in the Playboy Mansion. Then you sit down and I'm literally with the bust literal and figurative of Barbie Benton behind my head. And then he walks in wearing the uniform, you know, the jacket yeah. and the pajamas and the slippers and the pipe. smoking, smoking jacket. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that, and, and it was, if you go back and read anything or if you go and find anything to read from our conversation, I would say that track that one down. It's uh, the interview that's appeared, the chapter that appeared in the, in the God factors up on my website, KathleenFalsani.com or GodGirl.com. Um, we really, it was when we both managed to get out of our own way in a moment that this crazy magical connection happened and we had this conversation that we never would have had sure. before. And I find that a lot in life that if I can just, if I can manage to maybe sort of get out of my own way for 10 seconds, maybe the other person will be able to make a connection or something, something magical will happen right. um, that gets us to a different place together. You start to find common ground that maybe yeah. you didn't think you had or was possible because yeah. you've already you've already said I'm going to be open and and available to this right. other person even and maybe even particularly when I might not agree with them on some core issues. Right, right. And you know, as a journalist, um, I don't I don't always sit down and talk with people that I agree about everything with. And I know it's probably shocking for somebody who covers religion. You know, well, it makes it much more interesting divisive. reading. That's for sure. Way yeah. more interesting. So yeah. I always kind of gravitated to people that. Um, that might surprise that might readers. surprise me yeah. yeah and you know i uh i i haven't done straight newspaper reporting in a long time and i found especially in this the last six months or a year i really miss doing it and it i think it i realized I, I was able to grasp again why i loved doing it and it was because when i started out wanting to become a journalist it was so i could help explain why people did the things that they do or if they believe something how that then um, manifested in their lives if you say you're a buddhist then what does that mean to how you eat and how you educate your children and how you drive and what music sure. you listen to how you create art um and that falling back in love with that okay that was my call that was what i felt my vocation was and i do think journalism is my vocation it's my calling the same way somebody's call to the clergy might be um, because that was my job to be that translator to help people understand each other better and I've just started to do that kind of journalism again and at, at such a time as this I feel like it, it's the best thing I could possibly offer to the world is to help 
facilitate those conversations going forward. So you and so just to go jump back into your own story a little bit, um, you and and Maury both left journalism. I mean, working for newspapers in in 2008, in 2008. And about the same time or just before that, you also had an addition to your family. Just after that, we had had met him. We're talking about our son, uh, Vashko, your godson. My godson. Um, I own him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We had met him in Malawi in Southern Africa in 2007 when I was... How did you end up getting to Malawi? (laughs) It's all about Bono. Um, So, yeah. In 2005, when I started working on the God Factor book, part of the reason I... I have to back up even further than that. When I started doing the project in the newspaper called The God Factor, which was the idea of sitting down and having long conversations with people about what they believed, who you might not usually think of having conversations with. So we started with politicians, and that's Barack Obama happened to be the first one. Sure. Um, before that... And you moved into cultural, different cultural leaders. And yes. Like that. Yeah, yeah. In that, but it was inspired by, in 2002, I had spent about two weeks on the road with Bono and his then organization called DATA with D-A-T-A, AIDS Trade Africa, which predates the one campaign. Um, as he rode a bus around the American Midwest, essentially trying to get evangelicals to pay attention to the AIDS emergency in Africa. And I was the only journalist who, who traveled with him the whole time. And I traveled as a religion reporter, knowing that he was doing this because of his faith. And he allowed me to have those conversations with him that he hadn't had in a long time. And the response from readers was incredible because it just, it wasn't just a one-off, are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? What do you think of the Pope question? It was really deep. Like, what do you believe? Yeah, what do you really what's believe? God like? Yeah. And why do you do this? And so that was sort of the, the prototype for this God Factor series. That series in the paper expanded to um, people like Hugh Hefner and musicians like Annie Lennox and filmmakers and all kinds of people, culture shapers of all uh, stretches. And I got this book contract and then we did a bunch of new interviews with new people for the book. Um, And when I got that contract in 2005, um, I wanted to give something back to sort of say thank you. And, you know, we both come from a tradition where you tithe. And so I want, but I didn't, we didn't go to a church at the time and I wanted to tithe in some different way. And the one campaign does not take financial contributions from individual people and so I I contacted Bono's assistant at the time and I said who needs x amount of money right now somebody that you vetted and I don't mean for long-term planning I mean like an emergency and she Lucy Matthew bless you Lucy got back to me very quickly with two or three names of organizations one two were in Uganda and one was in Malawi right and I picked Malawi because it was the road less traveled by I didn't know much about Malawi I had to look on a map to see where it was and so we gave a donation there. And then a couple of years later, um, when I was working on my second book called uh, Sin Boldly, A Field Guide for Grace, which was a memoir of a kind of uh, experiences of what I felt were experiencing grace in the wild, um, we decided to, to, to go to Africa. Um, and <laughs> this is the craziest story. In, in between that time, I had won a two-week, trip to Africa um, through a raffle that an NGO, a small NGO in Chicago called the Global Alliance for Africa uh, was doing. And um, I've never won anything else uh, before or since in my life except for this one raffle. Um, And when I was working on this book, 
I had started taking intentional trips. I went to Ireland, my favorite place on the planet, to try to figure out what it was about grace that drew me to that place. Um, I spent some time in Montana with the uh, man who at the time was the only resident rabbi in the entire state, Alan Setcher and his beautiful wife, wife uh, Ina Albert, who have become my second set of parents. Wonderful people. Wonderful, wonderful people. Um, Vashko's Jewish grandparents. Um, and Maury said, hey, why don't we take that trip and go and see how Grace shows up in Africa? And it was on that trip that we added on a little bit to the trip that was to uh, that we had won that was to Kenya and Zanzibar and uh, um, Tanzania and go to Malawi because it was sort of in the neighborhood. Now, if you look at a map, it looks close. It's not really that close. It's sort of in the neighborhood. It's hard to get there. Yeah. Hard to get to Malawi. But we went and we spent three days on the ground with this organization that we'd given excuse me <clears throat> given some money to we spent three days on the ground with this organization we'd given some money to years earlier and at the end of the first day um the the group was called uh, chisomo and it worked with street children in malawi um malawi like a lot of places in sub-saharan africa uh has it's basically lost yeah. an entire generation of people your age and my age in their 30s and 40s from aids so there are all these kids who are orphaned Many of them end up living on the streets. And this is one of the poorest con countries in Africa. Correct? Yes, yeah, yeah. In, in the world. In the world, um, which yeah. So yeah, dirt, dirt poor. Um, and so this organization worked with kids who lived on the street, not to get them into orphanages because at the time uh, it's a little bit different now. But at the time, um, adoption really wasn't done. Right. It's a it's a cultural thing. It's a tribal thing. But they wanted to make sure these kids weren't completely without any kind of help and so they had drop-in centers where they can go and get one meal a day and they had a little tiny plot of land in the back of this one center where they could plant some vegetables or whatever and so we had met with a bunch of these uh adolescent boys that they worked with and we were going back to our motel pedro's motel and the guy who was our guide said do you mind if we stop and meet one more kid he's just kind of special and in that moment where we just wanted to go back and have a beer and talk about what we experienced that day, we looked at each other and said, why not? Okay. And a few minutes later, on the side of this dusty road, this little clutch of mud and wattle huts, this man called out this name, I guess, and out comes this little boy who turned out to be uh, Vashko, who was, uh, his parents had both died. He'd been living on the streets for uh, on and off for a number of years. Um, probably since he was about five. He was maybe seven when we met him. And he was... Really small, right? Tiny. He was the size of, like, a average, like, three-year-old American. And so we had no idea how old he was or didn't know anything about him, um, but quickly realized that he was very sick. And they were able to tell us that he had a hole in his heart. And she, when aunt, his aunt, Esme, had one of the other kids go and get this chest film from her hut... And we held it up to the light and we could just make out his shoulders and you could see where some of his ribs were. And then this huge black shadow where his heart was because it was so enlarged because he'd been sick since he was born. Right. And so in the time we had left, we had about 48 hours left. We tried to get the organization to intervene. We tried to talk to some of the people who were benefactors. There was really just no help to be had for him. And we had to go. We had to move on on our trip and... I couldn't take him with me in my, my carry-on bag. I, he would have fit, and I would have loved to have done it, but I couldn't. And we had to leave him behind, and I don't think I've ever been more angry and just 
out of my mind with rage that we had to leave this kid behind. And I kept thinking about um, a, a lyric, actually, that Bono wrote that says, um, where you live should not decide whether you live or whether you die. And we were flying away from Blantyre, Malawi, and I was looking down at the lights of the city, and I thought, how many times have I seen that same thing in Chicago? And that even the poorest kid in Chicago that night at Stroger Hospital would be getting help for whatever it was that was wrong with him. But this kid was probably going to die, and I didn't know what to do. And then I thought of something else that Bono had told me years earlier, which was, um, you can't do everything, Kathleen, but what you can do, you must do. And I thought, well, I can write and I have a platform at a newspaper and have a column and so I wrote a story about him and um, very quickly uh, readers in the Chicago area who read it were calling and sending and emailing in funds how can we help a bunch of doctors and hospitals said if you can get him here we'll we'll fix him and so then at that point you got him there yeah 18 18 months later so um, in at the end of April 2009 he arrived to have surgery and he was seven or eight at that time? Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. Something, little dude. Little teeny didn't speak tiny any dude. English. Didn't, didn't, didn't read or write in any language. Didn't had only a few words of English. He just knew Chichewa from Chichewa. Mm-hmm. And um, and so he had surgery. He recovered well. Yeah. And and then I guess the big question, if I remember correctly, was why would we send him back if he's here? <laughs> yes, exactly. Effectively, we we had already decided. What's he going to go back? What's to? he going to go back to? How can he go back to? Yeah. Right. Um. So we, uh, while he stayed with us, um, he was only supposed to be in the, in the States for a couple of weeks to have the surgery, which was fairly routine surgery um, by U.S. standards. Um, but he had a complication. He ended up with a raging case of malaria and oh. it kicked back the surgery. So he ended up staying with us for almost two months. We had already decided to move to Laguna um, before that. We, we had a house and picked out and all this and had no idea that we would have a child with us when, when that all happened. So when in, in the course of that six weeks, we got to know him better. We got to know a couple of Malawian families that lived in Chicago, and they, in their very um, passive and lovely way, eventually sort of said, if you send him back, even if you put him in a boarding school and set up a, a trust fund for him, he'll be back out on the streets in six months. And then we realized that there was no heart-lung machine in the whole country, there was no access to the cardiac medicine he needed. What do we do? But again, you couldn't really adopt. adopt right. But if you remember, um, this is my favorite part of the story. So he's he has the heart surgery. It goes perfectly well. The day he's moving from an ICU to a regular room at the hospital, we're standing there at the nurse's station and look up at uh, CNN and the crawl across the bottom says, High Court of Malawi rules in Madonna's favor. She had she Madonna had the adopted. singer. Yeah. She had just adopted her second child from Malawi, who was from the same town as Vashko. Um, and when she adopted her first son, David, she didn't do anything wrong. We know all the ins and outs of her case and her lawyer and the people that were involved uh, with it on the ground there in Malawi. Uh, but because there had been this sort of you can't adopt in Malawi, people thought she stole the kid or whatever. It caused this big kerfuffle. So that when she decided to adopt another child, the lower court of Malawi said, no, you can't. You have to come and live here for five years and you have to do all these things. And she, being Madonna, said, no, I don't think so, and appealed it. And so the day that we were standing there and saw this thing happen, the Chiron on CNN go across, it was the high court of Malawi overruling the lower court. And Maureen and I looked at each other and said, 
I don't know what kind of a legal system they have, but that sounds like case law. Right. And it was. And literally a year later, uh, we moved here with Vashko six weeks after he got the heart surgery. Um, a year later, we had to go back for his adoption hearing in Malawi. And during... And you didn't know... You had to take him with you. We had to take him back to Malawi. You didn't not know if you were able to take him out. Yeah. It was a, a pretty time. fraught time. And it wasn't until we're sitting there in the judge's chambers in the courthouse in Blantyre, and the judge had written out his opinion longhand wow. on a legal pad, and he had this real poker face, and he was kind of a gruff guy, and we really had no idea which way this was going to go. And it wasn't until I heard him say, I'm bound by the case of Mercy James, who's Madonna's daughter, that I knew he was ruling in our favor. Wow. And five minutes later, Vashka was our legal son. What a crazy, I mean, what a crazy, wonderful, grace-filled journey. Right? So you, you went to Africa to write about grace, and you had an amazing <laughs> experience, and uh, you have a you have a, one of the best uh, souvenirs you could ever keep out of Malawi. He, he's a good one. He's definitely been a keeper. And by the way, and it, it, I know you know this part, but the, the organization that we went over there uh, to visit with was called Chisomo, and it turns out that that's the word in Chichewa for grace. Chisomo, oh, wow. Yeah. And Vashko now has just graduated high school. He did, he's yep. a tall, strong, beautiful boy. Yes, he is. Um, and he's figuring out what he's going to do next. He is. Yeah, he's taking a gap year and doing all the gap year things. Um, but yeah, he's. We're, we couldn't be more proud of him. He's a lovely human being, and not for nothing, you had a lot to do with that too. We're we're very lucky to have uh, been able to participate in his life. It's yeah. uh, and, and to continue to do that. Mm. Um, so I think you've you know what you've kind of demonstrated is you've crafted this life where you started out in journalism you lived in Chicago mm -hmm. you and your husband were very successful there and then you kind of broke free of that mm -hmm. and you've been more Maury's been working for the Innocence Project helping get uh, yeah, people off death row so Maury's journalism um, specialization was in uh, inve he was an investigative journalist still is an investigative journalist but he focused on uh, criminal justice particularly um, wrongful convictions, death penalty cases, uh, prosecutorial misconduct, and that kind of stuff. So that's the reporting he was doing for the Tribune right. um, for many years. And it's also the kind of reporting... Sorry. <coughs> it's okay. It's also the kind of reporting that very quickly went away when newspapers started to... It's expensive. Because it's very expensive. And so, thankfully, that kind of reporting has moved into the private sector. So you have organizations like the Innocence Project that does do some reporting. You have uh, the organization that Maury now works for called um, the National Registry of Exonerations, right. where he you know, reports on these cases and writes their stories the same way he did in a newspaper, but for a private organization. And what they're doing is basically, there's, there's effectively, there's people who've been on death row through police right. misconduct or prosecutorial misconduct. Right. Um, because they're trying to close a case. Right. Effectively. There's lots of reasons why lots people reasons. wind up incarcerated wrongly. Those are, Those are leading, a couple, couple leading of big reasons. reasons. Yeah. But so the, and, and basically now we have a lot of new tools like DNA tools mm -hmm. where we can very quickly identify whether or not some of the, if you have enough, if you have the DNA from the crime scene, right. DNA of the person, you can quickly figure out whether or not they were actually there or not. Right. Um, and so over a thousand people on death row have been exonerated because, uh, of, is that right? Uh, so the registry is not just death row cases, okay. but um, wrongful convictions. Wrongful convictions. I think that they're, 1,300, 1,600 cases that are okay. included in the registry now. And the majority of those, and this is the scary part, are not DNA cases. They are just um, 
DNA cases tend to be a little more slam dunk. Right. The harder ones are when you have prosecutorial misconduct or you have uh, a judge who's misbehaved or you have some other kind of malfeasance. Right. For, yeah, forced conver- forced, uh, forced confessions, confession, um, right. you know, uh, hiding exculpatory evidence, all that kind of stuff. So that's Maury's specialty has always been that end of the sure. of the stick. Um, so yeah, so he continues to do that and he still does journalism. He partners with um, the Marshall Project and I, th- I can't remember if he's done something with, with ProPublica or not, but you know, a lot of the, the nation's best investigative reporters in, uh, in print have gone in that direction. In that direction. So, so, so living here, you've now what you're, I mean, help me, mm-hmm. help me with this. So you're an author, you do editing, coaching for writers. So a few years ago, um, after my last stint at a, at a newspaper, I, I got lured back. <laughs> when I say that, I always think of that line from um, the baseball movie, women don't get lured. Um, but I got Lord, uh, I, uh, Bull Durham. Um, I was lured back to the newsroom by the Orange County Register, who had this little renaissance for a time where they were bought by a couple of guys who weren't newspaper people who put all this money into the print side when everybody else was taking money out of the print side and giving it to digital side. And so they hired me to be uh, the religion columnist, and it was just, it was amazing. It was right before. Um, Pope Francis was elected and so I was able to go over there and do that and um, it was an exciting time it was exciting year to do it and then of course as we all knew it was going to happen the money dried up and they got downsized and I had to quickly try to figure out how I was going to make a living again and you were very helpful and at the time helping me sort of imagine what other skills I have besides reporting Uh, and I ended up uh, a little bit later um starting a, a literary consultancy that Maury works with uh, me in as well called Sinners and Saints Consulting, where we, we work with um, mostly first-time authors, but sometimes authors who are changing genre or haven't done a project in a long time, to take an idea they have through the process of putting together a proposal and trying to find somebody to represent it and hopefully finding a publisher to to work with them. So it's if you're, uh, a different skill set, but it's really gratifying. Yeah, no, it's, you've written for publications all your life, mm-hmm. and you've written a wide variety of the magazines, written books, you've done mm-hmm. newspaper. When people are thinking about, you know, a lot of people say, well, I'd really like to be a writer. Um, so, you know, maybe the life they want to create or the life that they think they want to create, so right. sometimes the idea of it and doing it are very, very different. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the advice that you give an author who wants to be a published author and maybe you know, wants to take a crack at making a living at it or mm-hmm. making it their vocation? Well, uh, uh, these days when somebody says, I, I want to be a writer, if it's a young person, I usually say, why? <laughs> and how they answer that depends on, it w- sort of shapes what I say next. Um, what kind of answers do you get? Uh, y- usually I hear... Um, I just, I, I, I love to write. I've always loved to write. I feel compelled to write. I, it, it's not um, an intellectual, like, I feel like writing is the next step for me, you know? <laughs> and I have kids ask me, young, young people ask me all the time about journalism. And I kind of go, Ugh. And Well, frankly, until about six months ago, I would go, why on earth would you want to do that to yourself? Especially these, most of the time, they're print people. Right. Um, but now I, I, I've remembered this sort of calling that I felt like I've, I had, and I think it's a really noble thing to pursue. And so um, you have to, the only way to be a, a writer is to write. 
So whether you have a job that's paying you to do that or not, if you feel compelled to write, then you have to write. Right. One of the beautiful things, and you have to write often, and you have to write, a writer writes, you know. Um, The beautiful thing about the time in which we live is that we've never had more opportunities to write and, and publish and show and share our writing with audiences before. Right. So you don't have to be hired by somebody there's there's nobody who has to allow you to publish. You Access is wide open today. It's cra- It's wonderfully wide open, and some of the the most innovative ideas are coming from people who maybe didn't come up through a whatever was a traditional way to become a journalist. I mean, there there used to be sort of one pipeline, yeah. and now it's all over the place. And the the most interesting things I read, I spend a lot of time on social media right now. Um, well, I always have, but it, on Twitter in particular, that's sort of become my my drug of choice. And through that, I I see a lot of voices of emerging writers that I maybe wouldn't have in a different era. And it's the people who have a passion about a certain thing, whether it is competitive macrame or you know, ju- uh, prison reform or gun control or you know. Catholic bishops behaving badly, whatever it is that they have a passion about. They pick a topic and they are relentless in trying to find out and learn more and find out what the truth is and what's going on and tell people's stories. And the people who want to become writers are doing that. They're the the people who, who are being successful at becoming writers are the ones who are actually doing it. Telling great stories, telling great stories, be curious, ask more questions. Um, you know, to to be a great writer, to be a better writer than you are at the moment, you have to read, 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 read constantly. Right. Um, somebody else's vocabulary is going to enhance your own. I read a lot of poetry, as, as I think you know, and I read a lot sure. of Irish poetry in particular. And um, every time I read uh, a collection of Seamus Heaney's poetry, I am just astounded by his vocabulary. And it informs me and the way and then, of course, also the way he looks at the world. And I think about, you know, how how could I be um, uh, more curious? How can I be paying better attention? How can I listen more intently or listen in a different way? I I found, too, like when I'm traveling, so I'm sitting on an airplane or whatever, if I'm reading something that I'm really enjoying, Mm -hmm. a lot of times I'll open a Word document and just start transcribing quotes that I love. I totally do that. Because I think I was going to ask you did that because I think, you know, Writing those words that somebody else wrote yep. gives you the experience of writing that way, right. even if it's not your style and how you're going to write yourself. That's but right. it, it's an experience and it's an exercise, I think. And I've done that for like Midnight in Paris. I've done, I just did that recently with This Is Real Magic. I mm. did it with Bo Lozoff's book, um, Deep and Simple. But I, I, it seems to me like just doing the exercise sometimes makes a huge I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I started, I think I always did that in some fashion, just from being a professional student for so long, I took lots of notes, but I started doing exactly what you're talking about. I have uh, in my note function on my laptop and my phone and in my iPad, uh, I have these buckets that I just drop these things into when I'm reading. And I started doing that when I read Just Kids by uh, Patti Smith, because Patti. Ooh, great writer. I was just reading her before I came over. Her one of her. So uh, you're talking about the pieces. singer, but she's really a lyricist. I mean, her a lyricist lyrics are is a beautiful writer. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, she's fine as a musician. It's not really my yeah. favorite, but she, as a writer, she's extraordinary. Right. But she is a consummate c- 
consumer and student of other people's writing. And she talks about how she's always kept journals and she's always written down things that she's read from somebody else. I mean, she's introduced me to other writers for her passion for their words. Right. Talking about, you know, when she was a young woman, when she was in her late teens, early 20s, this is what she did. She spent time reading Baudelaire and and writing down words that she didn't know. And so her discipline created a, dis- a discipline for me that I, I, st- I still do and it's uh, it's really enriching but that whether you write it down longhand or you or type, type it, it yeah. out or whatever it gets into your consciousness in a different way it's connected to you physically in a way that it wouldn't be if you just heard it or even just read it it's a practice yeah, yeah no, I think that's right um, and so somebody let's say that you know somebody's been journaling they've been maybe doing some of these exercises and they get to a point where they want to write for a public. They want to actually get published right. so that other people will read them. And not just published on their own, right. you know, self-published, right. but really published either in an online journal or magazine or newspaper or, or an author or something. Mm-hmm. What's the process? I mean, generally, what's the process for that? Everything's a little... Every publication is different. Um, you, you know... Every, they all have somewhere a codified way of this is how you can submit queries sure um, this is how you can submit pieces you've already written but you really in order to be successful you have to have relationships with people and so you have to sort of foster those um and and figure out who who's who and and why they might want that right i mean whenever we've pitched stories because you've helped me pitch some stuff published or when i've done it myself i mean it seems like you've got a couple things you've got there's an audience that a publication is trying to reach or does reach Mm -hmm. Um, they have they have the standards that they <laughs> right. that they require, and and then you know if you're thinking about the editor who's making the selections, mm-hmm. what's an editor thinking about? What are what are some insights into how editors approach things that are sent to them that might help? Somebody? And I've been in the position as a, as an editor for a publication, having people pitch me things, and and I still get pitched things. Um, you know, as a as a journalist wanting somebody wanting me to write something for somebody else, or somebody who still thinks I'm editing for so and so, will invariably write me something. Uh, and if if they clearly don't have any clue who I am or what I do or what my interests might be, that's the surefire way for me never to respond. Um, <laughs> right. Again, do your homework. One of the beautiful uh, advantages we have right now is that most editors at publications have a social media presence on Twitter. Right. So if you want to know what so-and-so, if you want to know what Sandy Villarreal at Sojourners is interested in, read her Twitter feed. Right. She will tell you. She will tell you not only what what they're doing at Sojourners, but she'll tell you about her life. Right. And you can find out that way. What you don't want to do is pitch something to somebody where it's so tone deaf that not only will you not get a response they might remember how tone deaf you were when you pitched it. <laughs> they might so, not want to see you again. So do your homework. Right. And listen, listen, and make sure you know what else has maybe been done recently uh, around whatever it is that you're pitching, whether it's a short story, a, a fiction, or, sure. or, or, or mm-hmm. it's an investigative piece, or a profile of somebody. You just you kind of need to know what's out there so you're not being repetitive, so you're, you're well-informed. Fresh voice. And do you think, you know, somebody's just a phenomenal writer, do you think they have a hard time being discovered? Do they think they're a phenomenal writer? Well, yeah, Do other people think, I think they're that's a phenomenal the question, writer? Right? No, it seems like people are like, well, I'm so good, but they, nobody can see it. I mean, it seems well, to you, me if, 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 if you're, you're really that great, people are going to find you. You need to share it. Yeah. And you'll quickly find out how 
whether other people's opinion of your writing and how stellar you are or not affects your opinion of your own writing. Right. But I mean that what I what I've told people uh, for a number of years, and I do you know you mentioned I do coaching, and I still I still do that, and sometimes do workshops and stuff with with young writers. Um, it's you have to actually do the writing, yep. and that at some point, if you want to be published, you have to start sharing it. Right. <laughs> you can't just keep it in a journal, and that there are a couple psychic hurdles that people have to get through, and that's one of the first ones: having somebody else read it, somebody that you don't know whose response you have no control over. Right. Um, and, and listening to it, not just reacting against it, right? Yeah. So that that's the whole like, okay, other people with eyes are going to see this. Other people with ears are going to hear this. You know, okay. So are we, am I ready? Yeah, do it. Jump. Why right. not? Go and do that. And then there's the whole, um, when you get pushback, when you get trolls. I, I'm of the don't read the comments. That's sure. my thing. Um, Sage advice. And I think that's largely smart for most people. But when you're starting out and you're starting to get... But yeah, but, yeah but, but, I know. But, but you have the right advice. Right. Um, y- you have to figure out how you're going to deal with feedback. Right. No, I mean, and that's like Rob, Rob's really good about just not even yeah, looking okay. at it. Um, and, and what my take is slightly different only because I enjoy the I reactions. And so I like to push buttons and engage yes. some of the commentary to yeah, get more you, comments. You're a grenade thrower. Yeah. I, I'm more of a sort of like, Oh, but I'm doing that intentionally. I'm not doing that to hurt. You know, some people can't take the, the pain of, of negative comments. I probably have thicker skin. You do. But, and you've always been like that. You're, you're interested in, in people whose ideas are not, don't align with your own. You yeah, don't, no, you're not totally. threatened by people who have other who have d- dissenting ideas. Well, it starts with I'm very comfortable with the idea that my ideas might not be right. Also that, yeah. I'm <laughs> testing and experimenting a lot of times right. to see how these ideas play out, to right. see if I actually believe them, to see if you know I think they're actually true. And I also think truth progresses. I think as we experiment more, we learn more, correct. and hopefully we change our ideas from time to time. Yeah. Um, but one of the things, so you know, one of the things I think that's that's kind of essential in this is is understanding that even though when you're writing in a journal you know what you're saying right the real big question i think is what's the world hearing what's yeah. somebody else hearing yes and yeah. so when you're getting that feedback part of it saying okay i i was trying to say this they were hearing that how do i how do i transform my writing so that the world can hear what i'm trying to say and mm-hmm. Do they give a shit? Do they care? Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't well, matter, right? And there's a couple of i mean if you're a journalist you want to it's important that people are understanding what you're trying to say accurately. Right. If you're a novelist or a poet, who gives a shit what anybody else thinks about what you're writing in, in some sense, right, but right, in others, right. like you, you know, you shouldn't be writing it specifically for that reason. No, you don't. Yeah. I think that's, if you're, if you're an artist and you're making art because you want to elicit a certain response from other people, I think that becomes problematic pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's good. Yes, I, I you think I mean? you want to have your voice right. saying, and not just not What's just the thing that Rob says something about com- you, yep. you want to um, relinquish the outcomes. The- yeah, you're not looking for what the outcomes. You're right. going to make the greatest piece of art you can, and then see what comes from it. Right. I, and and I think to your point, you know, you can't make great art by committee. Right. Um, <laughs> you end up with a camel. But I, <laughs> yeah, you know, but this. but I think you also have to, and this is advice that I I think um, isn't offered, and I think it needs to be. You have to, you have to be persistent. You can't, I've had a couple of clients with fiction projects who, you know, have manuscripts and they're, they're, they're great. 
they really are great. They're great stories. Sure. And they can't. They couldn't get past the first the, the rejection. fifty rejections from publishers. And right. it's like, well, that that happens. I mean, there's a whole his books have been written of collections of of stupid rejection letters from famous authors. Right. I mean, it's just from it's just books part that of the became process. classics. Classics. You yeah. know, one of my favorite rejection letters was you know for a record label that didn't sign you too, like right. six months before they were signed. Uh, and then you have just ridiculous rejections. M- Maury's uh, first book, um, Everybody Pays Two Men, One Murder and the Price of, Price of Truth, is a true crime book. So it's, a, it's actual, real, it's nonfiction. It actually happened. And it's the story that basically centers around a hitman. And it's a great book, but I've read it. Yeah, yeah great it's, a, book. It's, a, it's a classic. It reads like a novel, but it's yeah. actually true. Um, he, the before the book was even out, um, Harold Ramis and Warner Brothers had the had bought the rights to the film rights. It's never been made into a film. It's somebody else. Owned, Fifteen people have owned the rights sure. to this film, but they were uh, still look, shopping the book around. And I remember the Warner Books, I believe it was. So the arm, essentially, the publishing arm of the the studio that owned the rights to the story, sent him a rejection that said, um, "Yeah, it's a great story, but it just lacks a central villain." Hello. It, it's it a has, story yeah, about a hitman. It's, it's all about a hitman who is the central <laughs> so, villain. Yeah. So you know so you can't really you it. can't yeah. give a whole lot of credence to rejection letters, but yeah. So there has to be if you believe in something that you've written and and believe that it's it's an audience that there is an audience for it, you just have to be persistent because if a book is meant to be published, it will be. If it's going to find an audience, it'll find the audience. Right. But you just can't give up when you get some negative feedback no and i also think you know these days with with digital and social you will find an audience oh absolutely if if you're a great writer and you're hitting on a topic that a lot of people care about or even a a small a strong subset of people care about you're going to find an audience pretty quickly and you can build that audience and grow it and um, but i think the the great thing is is you get to test it we didn't we didn't used to get to test this no not at all put it in print and see if anybody there was nobody else who was going to (laughs) be nobody had a computer if you had a typewriter and you you wrote something, you had to go to somebody else who had a printing press to do it. Now, we, you know, we don't have to do any of that. We, we can do it all ourselves. There doesn't need to be an intermediary. So you can certainly uh, test it out. And I think you need to think about why you, you write. I mean, I've written uh, five books and to differing levels of commercial success. Um, critically, they were largely warmly received. But at, at a certain point, I had to figure out why I wanted to write the next book. And if it was just because that's what you do and it became more about business than it did about the artistry of writing, then maybe I shouldn't be doing it. And so I took a long break. I'm just starting to get back into it now that I, again, feel compelled to write and it's not from an ego place it's from this is something I really want to explore and if it finds an audience great if I don't ever make the same kind of advance I made for my first book which I probably won't that's okay too so it has to be driven by purpose yeah or passion at least passion yeah you know that it's combination it's you know and and, uh, some of us are able to make our living writing and I think that's a gift Uh, a lot of people aren't able to do that right Um, but Either way, you just have to continue to, to do it. And can, and if you're getting frustrated with it, I think you need to unpack that. What is the need underneath the want? Yeah, yeah I love um, uh, Prayer for Owen Meany, the author of Prayer for Owen Meany. John Irving. John Irving. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, who I think he was a student of Beekner's, right? He was. Beekner was his chaplain at, at Exeter. Exeter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, his books are largely autobiographical mm-hmm. and they're a lot about a guy who wasn't a great writer, but just kept writing mm-hmm. and eventually started getting published and eventually became a writer. Mm-hmm. Wasn't a very good wrestler, <laughs> kept on wrestling, eventually became, you know, varsity and a, a college wrestler. And you see those themes through his work, which is really basically if you're supposed to write and you and you know you're driven to write, then you're going to go write. Yeah. It's almost like being a comedian or any right. other artist. You have to do it. keep doing it. Do it. Do it. Don't you worry about the outcomes. Keep doing the work right. and, and I think and listen to what the feedback you get is. Um, and find some trusted sources where you can get good feedback, right? right. I and mean, that's yeah. where you've been certainly helpful for me and, and uh, in here. a lot of ways. Um, so I guess this kind of gets to my last question. So... So uh, you've written a lot about belief. You've written a lot about faith. You've looked for faith around the world and and had some transformational experiences. 2018, we're in the fourth quarter. What do you believe? Um, I still believe that there is a conscious power in the universe that is personal and that is love and that wants us to rest in the safety of that love and that grace that uh, we're responsible for each other um, that we're connected in ways we will never fully grasp on the side of the veil um, and that my one job in life that I am absolutely certain of is that I'm supposed to try to be that force of love um, for the people I encounter. Do you think uh, Jews and Muslims and Christians worship the same God? I, as far as I understand it, and I still, still identify as a Christian person, so that's the lens through which I see this, there only is one God. Right. And, and they, we seem to share the same um, provenance spiritually there was one abraham and he had one god basically there's there's just god right so yeah so i don't find that scandalous at all no and it seems like what people want to react i mean the reaction that you hear to that is but that you know but i view god differently than a muslim or i but i view god very differently than another christian or but i view god very differently than a jew god different and i think it's is it you know Mm -hmm. um it seems to me that what rather than I think the reaction has been not looking for common ground. Yeah. Not saying, well, you know, yes, of course you view it differently than I right. do. By the way, I was born in, in, you know, Michigan. You were born in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. We have different cultures, different re- religious practices. Of course we would view this God differently. Sure. Um, I, I don't think there's an argument. I keep saying, what's the argument? <laughs> who, I, who are you arguing with, <laughs> right? The argument is about something that they're, they're not saying in the argument that they're trying to have. You know, there's... That my God's the only God? I, my, my version of this God is the only God? Is that what they're trying? I'm trying to figure this out. I'm asking the question. If you say that uh, a, Jew, a Jewish person's idea of Hashem uh, is the correct one, then my New Testament idea of Jesus and the triune God uh, is threatened. Here's a question. But that actually isn't what they're upset about. Yeah, what they're upset say, about is the thing under the thing. 
which, which would mean, so if my idea of God is not entirely correct, then what does that mean about who I am in the world? Right. And am I safe? Is that, well, <laughs> is and the binary answer key I got from my church uh, in, inaccurate? Or, if or this may, is wrong, then is all of it wrong? Or, or maybe we're both right is even more interesting, right? Oh, I mean, right. If, if, I mean, I guess the question is, did God forget to tell Moses that he was triune? Yeah, you know? <laughs> I know. So, of course, alluding to the, the great film that I'm so looking forward to, um, Same God, which is about our complicated alma mater Wheaton and uh, a professor there, uh, Larisha Hawkins, who did not look like what some people think a professor at Wheaton might look like when they pictured in their head. She's African-American and a female and a young African-American female who dared to put on the scary hijab, which by the way, a head covering, a lot of history of that in Christian circles too. Um, (laughs) My sister, Mary Charles, my aunt, the uh, sister of mercy uh, would have not blinked an eye at that. Well, she did. Yeah. Yeah, Um, well, so but you know she's Catholic, so that's not actually Christian. So. But, <laughs> wow, <laughs> only half of the only half of Christendom. But and I think to your you were joking, obviously. Yes. Um, but but I also think you know you look at there's there's uh, there are Christian sects, right? Um, Protestant sects like the um, the Amish wear head coverings. The the um, Anabaptist traditions, yeah. Anabaptist, yeah. yeah. Lots lots of head coverings, even just different articulations of Christianity in other parts of the world where it's just common for women to cover their heads, whether it's a babushka which, or a hijab. Which St. Paul actually... Yeah, uh, well, he said a lot of things. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so here, here's this young black woman teaching po- political science, right? Right. So not even like something less threatening like a poetry professor um, who... I was kicked out for poetry. <laughs> I know that. Um, who doesn't look like maybe she's supposed to look. She is not white Protestant Republican Christianity. Right. She's single, which you know makes her deeply skeptical, right. uh, uh, d- deeply suspicious to certain parts of, of Christendom. Um, and, and she dares to, first of all, quote Pope Francis, who was the one who said the thing about we all worship the same God. And which- by the way, is orthodoxy for half uh, of Christendom. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and decided to, because she's kind and was trying to, to embody solidarity with oppressed pe- persons around the world and in this country, decided that as part of her Advent discipline, she was going to wear a hijab. So she could feel what they feel, the so, looks they get, right. the comments people make, um, so she could walk in their shoes effectively, right? Empathy. Yes. And instead of even apparently trying to understand what she was doing, this is like the Kaepernick kneeling thing. Um, She wasn't trying to disrespect, I'm using her quotes, Jesus, Christendom, the Bible, evangelicalism, the school she teaches at. It wasn't even the patriarchy. It wasn't in her mind when she did it, right? No. And And she said something that somebody leapt at and because she was, in my mind, she was already suspicious. She already wasn't quite right, right. In, in where she was. That it was used as proof. See, see, we knew all along she wasn't quite right. right. And here she said this thing that's clearly uh, not Orthodox Christian belief. Orthodox with a small, small O. And she was uh, basically fired for it. And I, 
uh, of all the things that are complicated, complex, alma mater has stands for and has done over the years, this is the one that made me almost want to torch my diploma. I just was like, no, this, this is the opposite of everything that the Holy Spirit is doing in the world right now is what you're trying to do with this woman. And I think, you know, by I think, silencing her and shaming her. And, yeah. And obviously the film comes out on the 24th here in Los Angeles at the LA yes. Film Festival. Yes. Um, are you, are you planning to go? I'm going. Good, 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 good. Yeah. I'm, I'm not here, but I, uh, I wish I was. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the interesting, back to some of the conversation we've had today, you know, the interesting thing for me about this whole thing is we're going to be doing a lot of screenings, a lot of discussion groups at different schools. I did ask Phil Riken if he would like to have it screened at Wheaton. Uh, he has not replied. Hmm. But, um, but you know, it's going to be at uh, Calvin College and Hope College. And, the Chicago um, Film Festival. Chicago Film Festival. Uh, New, New Orleans, Orleans Film Festival. Cork, Ireland Film Festival. Yeah. I mean, it's well, I think we'll also be, there's an Ivy League tour that's in planning mm-hmm. right now, too, just because this is such an interesting topic, mm-hmm. um, particularly right now in this, in this political season. And I think the big question is, why can't we hear each other? Right. Um, why is it we're screaming past each other? And I keep coming back to what are we really arguing about here? What's That's the, the thing. thing. What's the thing, the thing under the thing? Right. What are we really upset about? What are we so What's about? really scaring us? Yeah. Why are we so yeah. angry? Um, and how do we how do we make it less petty? How do we re- remove our own egos from this mm-hmm. and have a conversation where we can listen? And, so. and we're in the the filmmaker Linda Midget, who uh, again, of course, I mean, I know you talked about the film already, but she's. Uh, was one of my roommates in college and she was the editor in chief of the student newspaper at Wheaton when I was the managing editor. And oh, wow. she's, um, it was after my time. Then. Yes. Yeah. You, you, you had moved on. <laughs> <laughs> it was your season in Michigan then. Um, Linda ha- is one of the best journalists I've ever known. First of all, um, she, I went into print, she went into broadcast. Linda has a, just an incredible capacity to listen to people, especially to actually hear what people are saying, even if they don't hear it themselves. Um, so for her to take this on, knowing as as outraged as she was about what happened, and actually go and try to, rather than make a, uh, a kind of a, a piece of art that would just be damning, she really went into this like she does most of the things in her life and certainly her, her, her work as a journalist to, I want to understand to hear this. both sides. I want to understand this. What are we really, what, what's really going on here? What are we, not who's right and who's wrong, but what are you really trying to say? What's what are you really, well, how, why are you invested in this? What does it mean to you and what, what's really scaring you? Yeah, I think she does a great job digging into the history of the ideas yeah. that are really being debated and, and why and, and how fundamentalism in many ways has kind of infected evangelical Christianity yeah. to a degree, but, but not, not in a way that is being, um, it's, it's not disclosing itself. It's doing it kind of with a cloak yeah. and, a, and a mask. And, um, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see the discussions that come out and, and the conversations. Um, Kathleen, this has been really wonderful. Thank <laughs> you for your time today. It's always um, great to talk to you, David. If people want to reach out to you for help with writing or, or coaching, What's the best way for them to reach you? Um, you, if, if you don't remember what I'm about to say in terms of my email address, if you just look for me on Twitter, you can find me. Um, it's God Girl is my handle, G-O-D-G-R-R-L. God Girl. Yep. G-O-D-G-R-R-L. And my email, so you can hit me up. My DMs are open, so you can reach me that way. You can send me an email, um, and it's 
godgirl, G-O-D-G-R-R-L, no I, at gmail.com. And if you just look up my name on uh, on the Google, Kathleen Falsani, you will find me. Pretty easy to Hiding spot. in plain sight. Yeah, and I'm happy to, to talk to folks. I'm, I'm happy to work with folks. It's uh, Working with other writers was not something I thought I would do, but it's something that is tremendously life-giving, and I'm really glad I get to do it. So uh, it's something I, I enjoy and I imagine I'll do for the rest of my life. So, Thank you very much, Kathleen. This, uh, this has been the Kick Aspiration podcast. <laughs> and uh, it's been a lot of fun to hear how writers write and create a career in writing today. If uh, this is an interactive project, we'd like to get your feedback. Uh, please reach out to me as well at my social media. I think I've recorded enough times here. But I'd um, love to get your DMs or your emails. Uh, and uh, above all else be kick aspirational.